Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho with co-hosts Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. 847-866-9687 is our number in studio. You can call us on air. You can get your opera voice heard. You can give us your opinion on what we're talking about. we got a great show tonight. 847-866-WNUR. All right. Tonight... We kick off the OBS tour of America's lesser-known summer opera festivals over July and August. We're going to take you to our favorite locations where we like to hear opera and sweat at the same time. We start by giving you an overview of where we're heading, what makes our personal choices so special. But first, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal described how Europe's opera houses won over millennials. How did it happen can it be replicated in America? We're going to try and figure that out. Plus, 9.40 p.m., two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land, plus all of our team's hot takes on those stories. Great show tonight. Thank you for joining us for Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, great to see you back. Yeah, I've been gone for two weeks. You guys had your Team America episode, which I thought was great, and then the World Cup. It's been very sporty around here without me. I see what happens. You get rid of the gay, and all of a sudden you get all... Broy sporty. Well, okay, I guess I hey. should. Yeah, yeah. Please, Car- quit being so heterophobic, Oliver. <laughs> yeah. There's one issue that we can all come together on. It's that heterosexual people are having a hard time yeah. with things right now. Those are the lovely voices yeah. of Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. Also known as Statler and Waldorf for yeah. this episode. <laughs> over we're, there. In the, we're in the separate room. Yeah, they were over there in studio, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, straight white men are really being oppressed these days. I feel terrible for you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But don't uh, try them. Yeah. Well, one group of straight mi- me- white men that was not oppressed was the English uh, football team. I'm just so proud of my lads for getting all the way to the semifinal. Mm. That's pretty impressive, George. I mean, it was the furthest that they'd made it since 1990. 1990. That's... Italian 90. I remember it when I was just a wee lad. I'd say that they always have Paris, but, you know, but that, that might not help. That this, doesn't help. The situation. most important thing to take away is that we here at Opera Box Score correctly predicted the winner of the World Cup by choosing the winner of the World Cup. Because, opera. because Uruguay had nothing to offer the opera world. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, they, and they didn't offer a lot in the soccer world either. So. It's absolutely true. It France just... and France. We predicted the future. I think we're on to something. Uh, but so. to go back to the original topic, France is actually made up of a lot of immigrants, that, that team, right? 
Well, yeah, yes. and a lot it's of not a lot of straight white guys. There, yeah. I, there yeah. was a Washington Post, I think, article that said, you know, it was kind of problematic because a lot of people kept saying, well, France is actually the last African team in the tournament, yeah. and, and it's like, well, it's it's a, it's a country. I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, I, it's great. I know, but people like saying it as if it was a negative. GTFO. Yeah. Thank you. Know? you. With all the World Cup stuff, Oliver, did you watch Wimbledon? Well, or I was really? actually I was out of town for the past two weeks, and um, drink. I tried to. Yeah, <laughs> that was an exotic. And new, he did exotic Look at this Connecticut. Guy. Yeah, no. Um, but I was trying to watch Wimbledon in rehearsals, and it was a heartbreaker this year. Oh, real Why heartbreaker. Why was it a heartbreaker? Just because there wasn't a big star, Djokovic, who was no, I love of a I love Djokovic, but like Federer going out in the fourth round. I mean, in the semi, in the quarterfinals, and mm-hmm. Serena Williams uh, losing badly. I have to say, in the finals. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she did just have a child. I know. No, and I'm, still I still mean, made it to the finals. Of yeah, no, she's amazing. It was so graceful. In defeat. Yeah. No, I trust me. I'm, Gosh, I'm okay with. She's a consummate professional. I'm okay with Angie Kerber winning, but. Just it, like all of It would have been a great story had she won, you know? Agreed. Let's she's the she's the greatest athlete of all time in my book. Wow. Goat. Agreed. The goat. The goat. Female <laughs> goat. What's a female goat called? Uh, a goat. Yeah. A goat. Let's a talk man. some opera. <laughs> Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Thanks, Norm. WNUR. 89.3 FM is what you're listening to. It's Opera Box Score here. In the Wall Street Journal, an article from last month wrote, quote, Opera is unexpectedly hip among many European young people. Through a series of innovative efforts, European cultural institutions like La Scala and the Paris Opera are attracting a younger set. La Scala's longtime special season premieres in its under-30 program, Tickets are 20 euro, have proved to be wildly popular, and the article goes on. The Paris Opera has introduced a similar program, and in June it debuted a Phantom of the Opera game that lets players roam through its historic venue. Side note, that's kind of like an escape room idea. And lots more stats, facts, and figures to compute on this, which I think begins with defining what millennials are. Apparently, according to the Wallace Foundation and Opera America, who just did a detailed report on this, that would be people age 18 to 34, so born 1984 to 2000. I missed the cut. I'll be honest about that. You're a Gen Xer? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're smack dab in the middle of it in this room. Yeah. Over Are you over here in the over here in the children's room. <laughs> over here in the playpen? Yeah, really. I'll do your diaper change later, but I, you'll have to ooh. pay me. I want free things. So let's let's start here, Matt. What is the trend that you're seeing in all these examples that we look at from Europe? What's the overall trend? Yeah. So there's a quote in this article that really stood out to me, which is that. Uh, just giving cheap tickets to things isn't really enough because it doesn't get people coming back. It it stays kind of sporadic. So what I feel like they're trying to do is really play up the social aspect of it, uh, make it so that there are a lot more people of the same age group hanging out together, build, making friendships, building connections, so that there's that social aspect of it that's kind of reinforcing the art of it itself. And that has always been a part of the opera world. I mean, going all the way back to the chamber operas, if you talk about, you you know, you can read all these accounts of people who would go to the opera in Paris because they wanted to be seen by the king and that was, or, or when the Met was founded in New York and all the people, and this is like a kind of a, democratization of that same concept where it's making it accessible to more people uh, as opposed to being seen among the elites, but it's still like trying to have people out for a whole experience instead of just just a performance. 
So if we go a little deeper then and we look at some of the numbers here, what we got from the Wallace Foundation report is that annual earnings in this age bracket are down $3,000 from 20 years ago. Student debt is up 60% from 2002 to, to 2012. So, and Tobias, I can ask you this. Matt, I can ask you this because you're in this generation. You guys feel the pinch, right? You guys, let's Absolutely. be honest, you're in debt, right? Student oh, oh debt. Yeah. Yes. Does that prohibit you from spending money? Does, would that prohibit you from spending money on opera? Imagine that you were not part of the biz. We know you're part of the biz. Well, I, you know, for me personally speaking, yeah, it, it would. Um, luckily, I, I have connections and I have ways to get discounted tickets. But as far as, you know, were I not in the business, would I even be in a position to consider buying an opera subscription with my current income and financial status? No, I wouldn't be able to. And I think we talked a little bit about it earlier with Matt in our pre-production meeting. You know, a lot of people in our generation, what did you say? They're uh, rent poor. Yeah, they, like we have expenses and like rent that it's just getting higher and higher and insurance premiums and student debt that's taking up more and more of our disposable income. You know, and as somebody who works a lot of 1099 jobs and pays insurance out of pocket and has, you know, I have pretty cheap rent in Chicago, but yeah, I do feel the pinch and I don't think that I would necessarily use what disposable income uh, that I do have to go toward an opera subscription. Now, would I do it for a ticket? Yes. Um, But to say that I could commit to more than a performance, I don't know. I don't know. This is what I don't understand, it, and maybe because it's Oliver and I are old over here in yeah. Studio One. But, okay, so millennials don't have this disposable income, but they're addicted to their phones. 73% of the millennials, according to the Wallace Foundation, keep their smartphones by their sides. Yeah. So you, you drop however much money it is on, on a brand new phone. If you went to a live rock concert, hip-hop concert, Tickets the easily. hip and the hop. The hip and the hop. Yeah. Well, Seventy five so hundred dollars. You go to a hip hop or a rock concert and you spend the money for the ticket and then you have your cell phone out the whole time and you're Snapchatting it or you're putting it on Instagram or you're taking videos of it rather than just being present with your eyes and your ears, your oculars. But like, <laughs> I, I do think that there are people who would hesitate to go see a Wagner opera because you can't check your phone for five hours. Is that a? I mean, do you do you think that's a deterrent? There for are people? intermissions, yeah. you know. What? <laughs> no. Not in any operas I've ever been to, Oliver. I mean, I do think that the time commitment is a big part of it, and not even just the performances, like the time commitment of the whole evening. If you're going to a long Wagner opera, dinner starts at five, and that's something that you have to do, and then you sit there for four and a half hours, and then if you, you're either going home or you're going to get a drink afterwards, and either way, like both the hours and the dollars add up there. And when you have so many other things that's competing for what limited disposable income you have. I, I feel like nothing pleases you guys. I feel like millennials are a bunch of whiners. Uh, all right. It's too much money. No. Okay. It's too long. Hold on. I can't Hold pay on. attention. We're just trying We're... to paint the picture from the other side. You're talking to two guys who love going to the opera <laughs> and who go frequently. So I'm going to come over there to Studio One in between here. <laughs> but just as much and of I'm the gonna, problem is I'm going to grab you, you and shake you around, George. But those... I mean, these problems are serious, and they generally have not been taken seriously by people in older generations. I actually take a big issue with the fact that people talk about cell phones as a luxury when the way the world has changed, they they aren't. Uh, If you're going to work in a lot of fields, you have to be accessible via email 24 hours a day. You, the people don't have landlines anymore. They have cell phones, and it's the world isn't set up anymore so that you can really get by with a flip phone if you're trying to. If you're if you're trying to be successful in the same kind of way, 
as was possible maybe 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. George Cedarquist with a great group of people on the show tonight. Tobias Mm. Wright, Matt Cummings, and our creative consultant, Oliver Camacho. He's just back from the East Coast. We're going to get to him and some inside stories uh, on summer opera festivals. That's right after the break at 9.20. Before we get there, I'm wrestling. Oliver and I are wrestling one side against Tobias and Matt about millennials and why they're such whiners. No, sorry. About why they I don't mean, I, go to the opera. I don't necessarily blame them. I mean, I, I feel like there are barriers to enjoying opera, and our education system is not helping with those barriers Uh you know, it used to be that you could actually even turn on the TV and like watch, you know, Marilyn Horn sing Non Più Mesta on the Johnny Carson show, you know, and that's not happening anymore. Like if you're lucky, you can catch the Met HD broadcast on PBS, but who even watches TV anymore, you know? So just the opera is not in the public mind right now. And um, yeah, and I don't know a lot of, you know, schools that offer education in you know the the performing arts and and the way that it is in the public mind is really not very positive it's usually for creepy people and super villains yeah or and, for commercials about <laughs> pasta or something like that you know and the those those statistics that are on opera america po- actually point out that opera attendance fell a lot more among middle-aged people than it did among young than, than it did among millennials and maybe I, I mean a big part of that i'm sure is where attendance numbers started at that there was a lot higher level to fall off for people 35 to 50 but if you think about the fact that like people our age our parents probably didn't go to the opera our teachers probably didn't really go to the opera we didn't have people to in uh, i mean toby and i obviously did in some way because we're here but millennials in general didn't have people who could introduce them to opera in a positive non- uh, non-biased against it way in the same as maybe previous generations And you see these did. initiatives that they're doing in Europe, um, which I applaud, but they already have the advantage of opera being part of their culture. You know, like you, there's so much history of opera, like in Italy and France and England and Germany, that it can really be about their national history, you know? Less so in Uruguay, I would Yeah, yeah, that's you. true. Yeah. That's true. Uruguay's really got it Where bad. they don't even have an yeah. opera company. <laughs> or a singer that you can name. Um, so they have that no, advantage. No, not for lack of trying. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's not my fault. You've seen they, those guys sweat last week. They have that advantage, and we necessarily don't. Uh, and, like, for us, like, musical theater, you know, is our history. Well, and so, you know, it's interesting the point you just made, Oliver, about it being their history and then kind of the initiatives that have started here. I think part of that actually worked in to the detriment of the millennials because it is their history, because it was this social thing that people grew up with. Uh, you know, talk about opening night at La Scala um, in, what's the guy's name? Listener, who was previously the director there in 2008, and he said that opening night tickets were 2,500 euro for a premium seat. And he talked about price being a discrimination point. Um, because it was so popular, you know, and so I think that priced out a lot of people that were our age from going, and that's why these initiatives started. You know, the thirty, the under thirty groups to do, uh, get people in uh, an opportunity to see dress rehearsals, and then develop a different kind of relationship with these patrons. I mean, listeners got absolutely the right idea. To Toby's point, that was his great quote when he was at La Scala. What, uh, now he's in Paris, and he says, "Look, we have to develop a relationship. It's not about offering free tickets, Matt." That's to your point as well. I will say the the Phantom of the Opera escape room. How are you guys feeling about? I that? mean, like ten out of ten would do it, but I don't necessarily <laughs> know how how effective I, it's going to be. And I'll just finish my thought by saying that, like, 
France, Germany, Italy, England, Croatia, because they are like nationalistic in their appreciation of of opera at first before they expand to other cultures. They have and they have that history. You see uh, the revival of Baroque music uh, happening much more intensely over there, whereas the U.S. we have no Baroque, you know, to speak of. But on the other hand, we we're better at contemporary music, you know, mm-hmm. because we there are always going to be artists that are creating and that want to create. So I think America has the advantage of being of having you know rich 21st century work. Um, We'll see what happens in the 22nd century if we're still performing those things, if we're still around, if we're not Russia by then, you know. Um, <laughs> you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right, Oliver, right? So we've seen the rise of the American chamber opera, maybe not since 2000, but certainly since 2010, right? 80 minutes, 90 minutes. Actually, it kind of reminds me of when we were kids, you know, back in the 80s, all the movies were like 85 minutes long. They were really yeah. short movies. Uh, Matt and um, Tobias, of course, wouldn't remember that. They they no, I've never seen a movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I've never seen anything from the 80s. I just want to finish Is that my, like a Netflix? my idea, my stream of thought by um, talking about influencers. And it, this, I think, article almost touches upon that. But uh, maybe for American audiences, what we need are people like... Beyonce or whoever is popular these days, you know, to be interested in opera and to be seen at opera and to like be tweeting like, oh, I just went to see my friend, you know, whatever, um, Nadine Sierra like sing Jilda and it was the bomb or what? I don't know how how you young people talk these days, you know. Pictures that they put in the paper whenever they have they have a big opera gala are always yeah. hilarious when they're like celebrity Blythe Danner was at the <laughs> Met opening tonight exactly yeah. like sure she's great yeah. I mean I love Meet the Parents but, to, but. Your, to, your, to your point Oliver look you know truly great artists are fascinated by other art forms and by things that they don't understand there's really no reason that Beyonce who in my book is a phenomenal musician and she, she and, appreciates and vocalist art, yeah. she appreciates Star of Carmen art opera. She, yeah. okay let's move beyond that one she appreciates the the singing human voice there's no reason that she couldn't go to and get into opera yeah yeah absolutely maybe she can have uh Toby Maguire, Toby Maguire, Toby Tobias Wright. Who's Toby Maguire? I love Spider-Man. Toby Maguire. Dude, <laughs> I just, no. Tobias Wright, though. Tobias keep, Wright. keep going. No, oh, Please, somehow connect me to Beyonce. I am so excited. Oh, I for was. This. I forgot. You're friends with Nicole Cabell, not Beyonce. This is true. Okay. Well, Nicole Cabell is sort of like the Beyonce of of opera, isn't she? I guess you. I, I don't know what you're getting at. No, what I was saying. Also, is like I, if, I think friends is a loose term. I know Nicole Cabell. <laughs> I don't want to like overstep anything. Here. No, what I'm saying is we haven't had enough uh, sampling of operatic voices in in, in the hip and the hop. You know? I, like, I like what you're saying, actually, Oliver, because I mean, some of my favorite, some of the biggest influential videos of my life are mm-hmm. from like Johnny Carson show mm-hmm. or like watching people make public appearances that were opera singers and it was part of the mainstream. But we really don't do that anymore. And I do. That's the TV thing as well, because nobody has cable. Nobody, you know, but nobody can afford it. And, yeah. and, and uh, Sesame Street moved to HBO. So <laughs> exactly. let us know what you are thinking out there. You can always tweet us at Opera Box Score. Wait, wait. If they tweet us at Opera Box Score, what happens? I'm sorry. If they tweet us at Opera Box Score, what happens? Well, We're they gone. get one of our lapel pins, of course. <laughs> no, but you don't understand how Twitter worked, do you? <laughs> well, I don't get your question. Um, who's, you need a millennial to help you out, you, don't who's you? Who's managing our Twitter account? George tweeted today. Me, I tweeted today, yo. Oh, really? Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm all over Twitter. 
Seriously, right. you tweet me, I'm going to send you an opera box score lapel pin made right here in Chicago at Busy Beaver. You're going to send it to everyone. Gonna... I'm going to sell it. Okay. I mean, I'm going to send it. <laughs> hey, what's your dream <laughs> opera summer festival? We're going to tell you ours. That next, only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 <laughs> FM. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist in studio live with creative consultant Oliver Camacho, co-host Tobias Wright, and co-host Matt Cummings. 847-866-9687 is our number in studio. You can give us a call. Let us know if you're a millennial and you've been to the opera, why you go, or sound off on what's coming up next. We're going to kick off a couple months-long investigation of some of America's <laughs> finest summer <laughs> opera festivals and some ones that are a little bit more off the beaten track, telling you about the artists, the venue, the vibe of the community, the surroundings, the participants, and the patrons and we're going to start with Oliver, actually, Oliver Camacho, just back in town. And I'm going to guess, Oliver, you're going to talk about where you just were. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that this is the perfect opportunity for me to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the Amherst Early Music Festival, which I wouldn't really categorize as an opera festival, but every year they do put on a fully staged Baroque opera. And uh, it is a pay-to-sing uh, for those of you who are wondering what that means, uh, us singers are so pathetic that we will pay an organization to give us a chance to ha- to be an apprentice, to to be on stage and to get that experience. And I think it might be the only uh, art form where you actually have to pay to play. Can you think of another one? No, oh, I, pinball, I, mean, I guess. Okay. But <laughs> no, I mean like to me, I, I, like. In any, are there any sports leagues no. where you have to pay to, to participate? But trying to explain it to like even actors or yeah. musical theater yeah. actors, it, it, you're usually met with a blank stare because yeah, they can't no, imagine true. having that. I that. mean, like, and like looking back at it because I've done a pay to sing before, right? I'm like that. That was absurd, yeah. and it, it was an absurd amount of money too. Not just that I paid. Period. It was like it was crazy. Anyway, yeah. No, well, anyway, Amherst is not broken system. Is not trying to make any money. They're. I think they barely break even every year, but what they do is very unique, and they've been doing it for decades, uh, which is to produce a broke opera. Uh, 
for the past 14 years, the stage director has been Drew Minter, who is a specialist in historical performance practice for the stage. Connected with uh, Haymarket. Now he is, yeah. He in was Chicago, invited to, right? he directed his first show here in Chicago uh, for the Haymarket Opera Company just this past spring. And the festival is in Amherst, Massachusetts. The festival is, well, the organization is based in Amherst, Massachusetts, okay. but the festival uh, right now is happening in New London, Connecticut. Mm-hmm, yes. Um, at any rate, there's other things that happen at the festival. There's like a lot of recorders. There's like a recorder workshop. There's English country dance. Uh, there's, you know, concert series. There's a choral workshop. Uh, there's a viol festival. There's lute festival. There's all sorts of things that are going on simultaneously. And it's probably the largest Amer- North American training festival where you can take classes at all levels. And the people who come there are all ages. I mean, like, I'm hmm. 43. I'm, like, one of the younger people there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the people that air in the opera are, are standard yap age, like, in their 20s and stuff okay. like that. Okay, millennials. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't know what TV is. Or, of course or not. Yeah. Of course <laughs> not. And uh, so, so when you go, uh, housing, you're, everyone's housed, it's, everyone's so the, fed. So the, it's at a college campus. And yeah. the college campus is actually very beautiful. Um, but you, you know, you live in a dorm and like you eat dorm food and you have to suffer through the non-air conditioning or the very aggressive air conditioning. It's, there's nothing in between. There's no like beautiful <laughs> room. It's just either freezing or like humid and disgusting. You know? <laughs> but anyway, um, the vibe there is that it's, it seems to have been started by a bunch of lesbian recorder players. And I say that with the most affection possible, but, um, there's a certain sort of like crunchy, very liberal feeling, um, you know, granola. Kind of rural New England yeah. in general, right? Yeah, and uh, it's people are extremely smart over there, hmm. and they know too much about music history. Like, nice. you know, you can easily put together a, a pickup choir or a pickup recorder ensemble or a pickup viol ensemble who will know how to read, like, historical notation and will try to outdo each other with their ornaments and stuff like that. You know, like, that type. It's like, I feel really dumb when I'm there. And it's nice to suddenly be in an environment where everybody surrounding me is not a complete idiot. (laughs) He says, looking directly (laughs) into my eyes. (laughs) Anyway, this year we put on... um, Luli, a Luli opera. I mean, where do you get to learn how to put sing Luli, Never. you know? Never. Uh, it's called Cadmus and Hermione, okay. and it's a ridiculous early Luli opera with a lot of, like, Italian, Italianate characters and, you know, that prologue with the gods having an argument and, you know, that five-act structure. It's really just about Louis XIV. Yeah, anyway. exactly, exactly, where the sun comes out and makes an appearance, and it's like, everybody praise the sun. It's clearly praising Louis XIV, you know. <laughs> Um, no, but it's, you know, it's, it's all about hierarchy and, um, you know, and the music is so gorgeous and I promise you, nobody knows how to sing French broke music. I mean, you have to find, you have to go so far to learn how to put this music on and these kids come and they're trying so hard and some of them have really studied and they're great, but it's one of the hardest styles you'll ever learn. You know, there's so many like rules you just have to accept that it's like with the french language like what really that you know it's just like that way in the music yeah, too. i've taken french baroque music to coaches who know like every genre of music yeah. and they just kind of say i i'm really not sure <laughs> yeah, exactly. what you would do here yeah. how, how do people cut loose and relax they cut loose by by playing like Beatles songs on their lutes and like having a jam session like wow. this is not i'm not even kidding you when i tell you that after the opera it was like maybe 11 o'clock at night we were having our cast party and somebody busted out 
I don't know, maybe their iPhone and connected to a speaker and there was suddenly some like French broke dancing happening. I'm not even kidding you. Like this, like we're kick back and do a do a gavotte, you know. <laughs> so there's a dance program there too, which is actually really impressive because they teach French, they teach broke dance, and um, yeah, they they perform the opera once and it's fully staged and fully costumed, and it's beautiful, and uh, the instruments go out of tune like after like 20 minutes, so it's well, like especially a lot of tuning breaks, you know, humidity yeah. or yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's really lovely, and I've been going there for the past 14 years, and now I work there. So if you apply, you probably will meet me. That's the bonus uh, for next year. You know? <laughs> You're going to hand out a lapel pin? They, I don't know. They have to work for it. But you know, yeah. they, they do this cycle of like where they change nationalities of, of the music every year. So this year was a French year, oh, which okay. means next year will be an Italian year. So we'll probably nice. do like a Monteverdi or a Scarlatti or Caccini or a Cavalli type of thing, you know, next yeah. year. So Cool. Yeah. Very fun. It's on my list now. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm serious. I know so little... If you've listened to the show, I know so little about that era of music. I could afford to learn something. Toby, they do a lot of uh, Baroque opera at your choice? Uh, no. What's your choice? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just going to leave you blank. Uh, my choice was Opera North um, in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And part of the reason is because I've no, been... Right, right next door. Right next to, door, uh, yeah. Actually, a return to New England. Um, mm. it's, and it's closely associated with Hanover, New Hampshire, which is where Dartmouth is. And part of that is because the artistic director's uh, a gentleman by the name of Louis Burcott. Uh, he started Opera North 36 years ago, um, and it's grown into a, you know, a really, actually great regional company that has a summer festival. Um, and they do two shows, two f- operas, um, usually standard repertoire. This year they're doing Tales of Hoffman um, and Barbara Seville, and then they do a, usually a musical. Um, and they, with the musical, what's really interesting about this festival is it has a young artist program or resident artists, as they say, um, as they call them. And I was a resident artist there, um, but got to make my main stage debut as Goro and Madame Butterfly. Um, and when I was singing, I was singing with, I mean, world-class singers. I was with Michael Brandenburg, um, tenor who has sung all over. Um, I, he covered Faust I this year. At the lyric. I think he uh, quit, though. He has, I think he has retired He's from opera. amazing. Jesus. I, yeah, well, I mean, the career is hard. Um but then the musical that they do, they bring in, you know, they bring in Broadway performers, Broadway directors, Broadway dancers. And it's a, it's, it's a tremendous community that supports this because it's a, you want to talk about a really educated community. Um, and they, Upper North is in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire is what they call it. And it's Lebanon, Hanover, and then the surrounding. I mean, it's just a beautiful area. But it's a lot of people who have moved there from Boston, uh, New York, who have chosen to, you know, kind of get out of the city, but then still go to a place where they have culture. Um, and I mean, it's a beautiful place. It's in the mountains. Um, yeah, to- I love it. Toby, you're originally from Kansas. Correct. Let me ask you: going to New England, uh-huh. do you feel out of place? Do you feel like you get along with everybody? I'm being serious here. I'm it's not. A sh- I'm not throwing shade. I'm- sure. Well, for me, you know, where I'm from is quite seriously the middle of nowhere. And I, I don't mean to poo-poo on where I'm from, but culture doesn't exist there. You know, there's no opera company within two hours of where I grew up. Is it Wichita? Uh, south of Wichita. I grew up right on the Oklahoma border. Okay. So there is Wichita Grand Opera. Um, but, I, you know, I never had a chance to go see that growing up. But, like, so, you know, for me, now that I've lived in Chicago for six years, you know, I have a degree from Northwestern, and I've been performing professionally, I loved going there. Because you want to talk about people who just love the art form and really embrace the people. This is a community. The artists that go perform in Opera North are not from that area. You know, they're from all over the world. And the resident artists, you know, they have 1,500 people 
um, audition. And from that, usually they narrow it down to about 12, 15 that they hire. Um, and, you know, there's donors there who um, really love to embrace the artists and not in a creepy way. They are just so thrilled that people are willing to come there and share this gift and, and create this wonderful uh, festival that they have there. And, you know, it's cool because they do um, there's a town square in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and it's, you know, beautiful. It's quaint. And there's an opera house there that's got 1,100 seats and it sells out every single night, hmm. you know. And people people go crazy. They're standing ovations. like, And they love what they're seeing because they're educated. They know what they're seeing. Um, and that's kind of a cool thing to be a part of. And so, yeah, I do feel like the community embraces it in such a way that there's no way you couldn't get along with the people unless you're just being a total D-bag. How are the parties? Oh, I can't really talk about that. There we go. I never partied. No, actually... It, I had some pretty hilarious moments partying with donors at their homes, and like, <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's a great, it's a great place. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. Our team is beginning our tour of America's summer opera festivals, and we're starting with off the beaten track places that are near and dear to our hearts. A place that uh, I am truly in love with is the Bayview Music Festival, which is in the northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. So further north than Interlochen, which also has a famous uh, summer music camp and festival. Uh, But this is up even closer, really near Petoskey is the biggest, smallest near town. So Bayview is kind of like Chautauqua, which is on the banks of Lake Erie, right? It was founded in the late 19th century. Uh, Bayview was founded by Methodists. I can't remember what denomination founded Chautauqua. Weirder things. They were like Unitarian Universalists or something, weren't they? They've Uh, got some like spiritualism. Definitely, definitely, right? And so basically, you know, if you were wealthy from Detroit, you got out of the big city, you went up to Bayview, you had your own little cottage. Some of these cottages are over 100 years old. They're beautifully appointed and decorated. And I think... uh, this has got to be the oldest chamber music festival in the state of Michigan, if if not the Midwest, possibly, where it is it is a pay-to-play, uh, although Bayview really prides itself on giving significant scholarships to all of its students. And there's two kind of divisions. There is a instrumental and chamber music division, and then there is a vocal division as well. I've only been connected to the vocal division where... Students will sing with the community of Bayview in a fully produced musical, and then they will, just students themselves, will sing in a opera, uh, the orchestra provided by the instrumental students. It's just so relaxing. You're right on the banks of Lake Michigan, on Little Traverse Bay, yeah, I mean, it's got, it's got the, it's not really a dorm, it's a big ancient house where all the students live, cafeteria, that sort of thing. But for the faculty side, you're also housed in these quaint little cottages. Just, I feel like everybody does such great work while they're there. Uh, the audience is smart. They're articulate. They are into seeing new interpretations of the classic repertoire of musical theater, the classic repertoire of opera. Just, to me, it is a program, again, a pay-to-sing program, that really punches above its weight. And, of course, 
it's in the Midwest. And that is why I've always enjoyed going there, uh, whether it was as, as an audience member, as a child, or, you know, working there much later in my career. So we've got the East Coast. We've got the Midwest. Matt, are you going to complete the picture? Are you going to pick something that's that's also in one of those areas i'm gonna i'm right on the border between the the midwest sort of and the south i i picked a festival that i also attended last year which was opera in the ozarks which is down in northwestern arkansas not a place you normally associate with a lot of uh operatic activity a beautiful place but it's gorgeous it's got these lush green hills and the campus is situated up and you and it looks over this valley and uh most of the buildings are not much to write home about, although they just comp- built a new uh, they built a new rehearsal hall that's pretty nice. Uh, but you go outside and you sit on the patio and you look out over this green and you talk about music and you this is in between hours and hours and hours of rehearsal because it's kind of like a summer stock program. Mm-hmm. They do three full operas every year, cast entirely with students and sometimes young professionals, but like not anyone who would have management. Is there an orchestra there and a professional orchestra. Uh, and they do, last year, our shows were Marriage of Figaro, Carmen, and Susanna. And this year, hmm. they're doing Barber of Seville, Ballad of Baby Doe, and Deflator Mouse. So, like, hmm. serious shows that take a lot of people, a lot of yeah. time, a lot of attention just to mm-hmm. get all the details right. Mm-hmm. And do the singers sing in all three shows, or are there enough people to go around that they don't have to cast? There's, there's a... Con- uh, almost everyone is in two shows. Okay. Some people will end up in three, uh, usually if you're doing... Like three bit parts, you might end up in three. There was one kid last summer who was in every single performance, kind of by a mistake. How long? Within how, what time span? Uh, it's a two month program. First okay. month is rehearsals, and then the second month is a show practically every night. Hmm. So you learn a lot about how to pace yourself, yeah. uh, both socially and musically, hmm. <laughs> over over that time period to really get the most out that's, of your time. That's awesome. Two Isn't months. it like unbelievably hot? It it can Arkansas? be. It. it it really can be oppressively hot. We had uh, no water for th- about 36 hours also when our pump broke. Okay. Uh, but that kind of rough around the edges charm, I think, really really adds to it in some sort of way because it just makes it feel like a summer camp where you're there with all these people who love it. And the community there is so enthusiastic. Is it pay to sing or do you it, get a stipend? It's a pay to or? sing, but they have pretty decent scholarships so okay. that uh, uh, I ha- many people are paying significantly They're, less. They are closely associated with like the Music Clubs of America. Uh-huh. And so, well, I went to mu- Opera in the Ozarks. I previously have been there as well. And I was funded by the Kansas Federation of Music Clubs. Which was really cool because they knew that I it was like a they were somehow tied to Opera in the Ozarks. So they do their best. To, like yes, it's a pay to sing and it is expensive, but they do their best to get funding from find big chunks of yeah. money to send to people. And do you have to like hang out with your patron and like? I my no. patron was one of the nicest women I've ever met in my entire yeah. life, uh, and they they everyone there is so lovely, and the people you run into in the town are so excited to see you and meet you and talk to you. Because it just feels like it's a part of the community down in Eureka Springs, population 5,000 and change. When you look at it on paper, you can see that somewhere like Opera North or Amherst, you're going to get some very intellectual people coming up from Manhattan. Opera, I'm going to generalize here, and it feels like you're in the Ozark Mountains. Mm-hmm. And man, people are not going to be into the idea of opera. You are correct. But what they, but what they <laughs> are... What they do tap into around that area of Arkansas, though, is the the Walton family is nearby. Bentonville is only about a 
45 minute drive from Eureka Springs. So the company does a lot of performances in the performing arts center that the Walden family, which is the, the, the Walmart family. Right. Uh, they they have the state of the art performance center that's attached to the Bentonville High School that you get to do, and after being in the uh, after being in the pavilion up on Inspiration Point, you you kind of forget what it's like to have a full a fully functioning theater. <laughs> I see, <laughs> with, with an actual orchestra pit instead of just the orchestra off off in the corner. I, isn't it like a twenty two hundred seat theater? Yeah, it's it's, an, it's crazy. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> it's wait, how many twenty two hundred? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Good grief. That's you look huge. at the production pictures of the musicals that they have in their high in the in the hallway of this high school, and they look like touring shows from Broadway. The set, the production values are insane. Yikes! So it's not like there aren't people who appreciate the arts in those in those little tucked away corners. Fair enough. Great uh, rundown, boys, of some of these off the beaten path. Uh, Opera festivals. We t- we'll take our tour over the next couple months. It's not going to be a regular feature, but it'll be a, a sometime feature. We'll do some bigger places. We'll do some smaller places. Yeah, and we'll feel get free some... to call in and tell us about your favorite ones that people don't know about. Your secret opera festival in some place where lynchings happen. Well, or <laughs> or not. Well, the Notches Music Festival. There we go. We nailed it already. If you are at an opera summer festival as a participant, as an audience member, would love to hear where you're at and just tell us one thing that you're absolutely loving about it. Opera box score at gmail.com. Something spoiling the view at the Santa Fe Opera. That's next on America's talk radio show about opera. Keep it locked. WNUR. 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. Regular patrons at the Santa Fe Opera grit their teeth at the mere mention of what is going to be a 72,000-square-foot casino bordering one of Santa Fe's premier cultural attractions. It's a multi-million dollar project by the Tesuque Pueblo, and it's being built on land that housed a flea market for many years that's expected to open this fall right next to Santa Fe Opera. When the show Slav by the acclaimed Quebec theater director Robert Lepage premiered at the Montreal International Jazz Festival... Earlier this month, it spawned a backlash and criticism that white artists had appropriated black culture. The storm proved to be too much, and the festival canceled the show after two performances. 
Irish-American contralto Grana Gillis was in London before President Trump's visit to the U.K. last week, just as the Women's March was looking for groups to participate in a protest called Bring the Noise, which meant people were planning to take to the streets banging pots and pans. Gillis asked if the organizers wanted a group of opera singers to take part, and she added a hundred voices to the mix. The Staatsoper Unter den Linden in Berlin played to 94% capacity last season. That was up from 91% last year. Earlier this year, French soprano Julie Fuchs was fired from Oper Hamburg's production of Mozart's The Magic Flute for being four months pregnant. Apparently that wasn't a problem at the Opernhaus Zürich, where she tweeted, Tonight's our last performance of L'Incoronazione di Popea, including a photo of her pregnant in costume. That's on operaboxscore.com. Exit stage right, the rat that climbed into an 11,000-volt power box and nibbled through a cable giving a power failure to uh, the uh, Opera House in Adelaide. And on this day, July 16th, Austrian conductor Herbert von Karajan died in 1989. And it was the premiere of Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio at the Burgtheater in Vienna in 1782. That is your two-minute drill. Welcome back to Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Matt Cummings. No enjoying. one's allowed to say that that had too many notes. No. that's all anyone ever says about abduction, and it's a great opera. I, I really love it. I was just saying to Matt while that was playing that I think my favorite Mozart singing music happens in abduction. That was uh, Diana Downround. Down yeah. That's correct, yes. Weird. That was recorded in 2010 uh, at the uh, Liso in Barcelona. Barcelona. Martin Aller Arten, it's got to be one of the most epic Mozart arias. It's like a concerto, basically. Yes. She sings for nine minutes. And that was edited to cut out the opening minutes of just instrumental music. That opera is so near and dear to my heart. That was the first opera I ever assistant directed on. And I think it really was one one of the pieces that got me back into this art form, having been a boy soprano and just wanted to be around that quality of music making and that sense of story and scale. What a fantastic piece that was. So uh, where are we going to start here, gentlemen, on the two-minute drill? How big is 72,000 square feet? Like is that a is that a massive casino? Do I have any? Do you how like what does a seventy two thousand square foot building look well, like? Well, if you if you go to the if you go to the link and the link is on our website operaboxscore.com, Look at the footprint of the casino 
Look at the footprint of Santa Fe Opera. The casino is probably one and a half times the size of the opera house plus the parking lot. So this thing is going to be like the Death Star. Well, and like Santa Fe has such a gorgeous opera. Like, oh my gosh, it's massive. Fe Opera is that when you look out through the auditorium, is that you see these these hills i've never even been there i've just seen the photos and it gives me the shivers yeah so yeah i would be pissed you're a gambling man now i'll tell this i can't gamble do you guys know that i i can't gamble why is that because i lost one night and the only game that i could win the only game that repeatedly paid out was an atm so never again Oh. Where do you get this stuff, dude? That's my real I life. I thought maybe there you was like a restraining like a order popsicle. on you. And all. No, that is Casino, that is so. that is my real life. I was playing blackjack and I kept losing, but I kept going back to an ATM and it, I won that one. Anyway, but on the other hand, it is you know it is, it is their land. This uh, it's true. This sovereign nation. It's true. It's true. And I was gonna go on just to say that I was gonna yes. play the devil's advocate, and and this is the Tezuke Pueblo. It's their land. It's their right. They can yep. they can build it. You know. Yeah. I'm not mad about it. But it does I mean this article does talk about the fact that they're both both parties are aware of the pluses and minuses of this yeah of of, of this construction and it looks like they are working together to try to find something that's mutually beneficial. Well, and so cuz like doesn't Santa Fe you go you go and you tailgate before the opera? Well, now now you go play blackjack or you go play roulette a little bit before the opera. No? Eh, not so much. Probably. <laughs> no. It's going to happen. Probably not so much. I loved I loved this um, Irish American contralto adding to the mayhem that was the anti-Trump protest. Oh, finally, an opera flash mob that I can get behind. Seriously, <laughs> well, first of all, this is a great idea to have a protest called hashtag Bring the Noise, and it was just so simple. It's just we're just gonna what they were what they did is they went outside Trump's apartment or his residence at the U.S. ambassadors, and they just banged on pots and pans all night. I mean, that's like medieval, dude. That's like a, a, a what, Panama City, where they. Yes, yes. Where they exactly. tried to get people out of the embassy by just blasting rock music. We we can we can be loud too, guys. And so, why not bring some opera singers in there? Absolutely. She in this uh, article in the uh, Irish Times, she talks about what um, artist she chose. She chose uh, um, Giuseppe Verdi as one of the. Um, composers to sing because he was an inspiring political activist and Damon Smythe who until recently was the only woman composer ever performed at the Metropolitan Opera there you go smart smart cookie here Mm -hmm. I hope it had the effect that they were looking for (laughs) and by calling her a cookie we just completely like became the patriarchy no (laughs) dude why I don't know I feel like cookie is like such a Derogatory term to describe, I, like I see. I think of smart cookie as being a different. It's an like, idiomatic yeah. phrase. Okay. It's it's. Wait, but maybe the she's maybe smart for a woman. Yeah. No, no, none of <laughs> there us was said there that. was no qualification like that. No. Goodness gracious, Oliver. No, no. Uh, Oliver, what would you have sung at this women's march <laughs> <laughs> to protest Trump? Um, probably like Italian girl in Algiers. You know, like uh. Cruda sorte is a good one, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd like to hear your ornaments. I, they're pretty good. So, I would love to hear some audience suggestions on that. What would you sing at an anti-Trump rally? Yeah. You can tweet us at Opera Box or you can call in eight four seven eight six six nine six eight seven. 
oh, this poor rat that electrocuted itself and then knocked out all of the power in the opera house in Adelaide. You know, isn't that kind of funny? Uh, have you ever been in a neighborhood where the power went out because the squirrel like got into an electric box or whatever? Sure. Is that a Kansas thing? I don't know. No, no, it happens. Does that happen everywhere? It happens, yeah. <laughs> that happens yeah, where people exactly. live, too. Like, we live on this grid that's, like, amazing. In the 21st century, we're connected in all these beautiful ways. And then a rat eats a wire, and it all just goes to hell. <laughs> The we're canceling performances. Stopped. The audience the was stopped. evacuated. Yeah. All because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if the rats there are as big as the rats in Chicago. Oh, those Australian rats, they're huge, man. They're actually called kangaroos. Well, we, yeah, yeah. That's what we would call a kangaroo. They just call it a they rat. They just call them rats. Um, yeah. I wanted to just, before we get out of this segment, um, acknowledge that there is a relatively new recording of, abduct- of abduction from the Seraglio. Um, the conductor is uh, Jeremy Rohrer, and it stars um, David Portillo huh. and Jane Archibald, I think is the soprano singing uh, Constanza. And it might replace my favorite recording. Well, it never will, but um, my favorite recording is the Kurt Böhm recording with Arlene Auger, Rary Grist, Petra Schreier, and K- Kurt Moll. But that recording was made like in the 60s or the 70s, and the tempos are so, so slow. Uh, but Arlene Auger singing Constanza in that year like was incomparable and remains like the litmus test for all other sopranos. That but one's pretty good. I just wish that it were Fritz Wunderlich instead of Peter Schreier, Schreier, yeah, because the one his with Eugen Jochum is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, true. But um, Jane Archibald, man, she's awesome, and David Portillo is also he's great. Yeah. Hey Matt, what do you think of the uh, pregnant? Papaya. I think it's such Judy a great Fuchs. concept because I, I mean, I'm all about like tying, tying into the history of opera and the real Papaya. Famously, this is like one of the, the those trivia facts that gets brought up in every single program notes for every single production of Papaya, which is that shortly after uh, Papaya and Nero got married, he kicked her to death while she was pregnant, mm-hmm. and the fact that they are using that in the production to to do something that maybe wouldn't have been done on stage every time and, and, you know, being creative and using their, their brains to try to get around, uh, what your original concept was instead of just firing the singer. Uh, that's, that seems like the way to go for me. I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's like, yeah, look, deal with the real. If you're a director, deal with the real and make a statement and do something interesting. I mean, shame on Oprah Hamburg for firing her from that production of Magic. You're all Flute. about Germany, though. You love Germany. No, man. Not, I, not, I, not when they fire, not when they fire people pregnant for, people. Not, yeah. not if you're hating on people who are pregnant. You know, because what, what you're saying by that is you're saying... You Get an abortion. You're saying you can't be uh, a parent and be in this business. And nothing rubs me worse the wrong way than hearing that kind of a sentiment. Hmm. I hope Oprah Hamburg can... Can rectify that. I don't know how, but I'm, I'm, we'll give her a shout out on on Twitter. There's no no question. Loved it. The picture of her is is uh, on her Twitter feed and also on our website as well. Gentlemen, we're going to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Another enjoyable night in Studio One and Studio Two with Oliver Camacho. Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings. Time for Good Call, Bad Call. What's great in opera land right now? What's dreadful? 
Take it away, Oliver. Class act soprano Julia Bullock, uh, who uh, was featured in an article in the Santa Fe New Mexican about her role uh, performance as Kitty Oppenheimer in Santa Fe Opera's Dr. Atomic. The first comment in the common thread is terrible. It says, she's culturally appropriating a white American woman's role. Just saying, liberals in Santa Fe, just saying, you're all about the mythical offense of cultural appropriation up there. It's a historical piece, and you are doing a Hamilton, which is absurd. And Julia Bullock replied, so classy. She says, end quote, with all due respect, I'm not appropriating anything. I am of mixed heritage, white and black, and I do own and celebrate all parts of myself. And all of that aside, a performer who has a genuine frame of reference for any material can add and can and should be able to take on uh, a role or a repertoire, regardless of color or presumption of what their culture is, because we share many deep and varied experiences as human beings. Mike. Boom. Bravo. (laughs) I'll give that a standing O. Matt Cummings, what do you got? I really like Julia Bullock now. (laughs) I I already did, but (laughs) I always, you know, you said the first comment, and my first, I was like, "Don't read the comments." I think she gets another good call for for that response. Fabulous. Here's my good call: is uh, the kids and I have been working our way through the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Mm -hmm. All students of acting, theater, opera need to watch Johnny Depp in these movies. It will show you just how far you can go in characterization, physicality, execution, and still get away with it. Learn from watching Johnny this Depp. actor. He's a sad, sad person. It, I'm not talking about his his person, man, or his off-screen character. I'm talking about in these films, he just shows you how far you can go. And I think students of acting would do well to watch it. Also, the arc direction is fabulous. Just how they made those ships. I'm just... We're big into pirates right now. (laughs) Hey, that's it for uh, this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And you can leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera on your summer road trip. We're back on Monday, July 23rd, 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes. Please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.